ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today it's a conversation that touches on the whole idea of trust. I think most of us can't exist without extending at least some small degree of trust to people we meet and to institutions. And most of the time it's fine when we do, which is why it feels so outrageous when that trust is abused from an airline, a bank, or an individual. And this is the subject of a book by Jean Rickmans. Jean Rickmans has long been at home in the publishing world of Australia as a journalist, as a publisher, and now as an author. Jean grew up in Canberra in the 70s and 80s, and like most kids, she desperately wanted her parents to be suburban normal. But her mum and dad were anything but. Jean is the daughter of a Chinese mum and a famous father, Pierre Rickmans, who was a China scholar, author, calligrapher, painter and translator. He was a wonderful man and one of the Western world's greatest authorities on Chinese history and culture. Jeanne's family upbringing gave her a powerful sense of security and a trusting nature. But a strange series of events and then a physical attack from someone close to her led Jeanne to think more deeply about the need to trust and living with the risks that poses. It's the subject of a short and powerful memoir Jeanne Rickmans has written called Trust, A Fractured Fable. Hello, Jeanne. Hello, Richard. When your dad, Pierre Rickmans, died back in 2012, you were asked what the great man was really like, and you referred to a school project he conducted with you. Tell me about this project. It was an art project. It was for Year 3. I attended the local Catholic primary school called St Peter and Paul's. We had a lovely group of nuns, Sisters of Nazareth, and we were asked to construct something. Usually back in the day there would have been pipe cleaners or paddle pop sticks. Perkins paste. Perkins paste, exactly right, Perkins paste. And I came home with an idea in mind and my my father said, hold on, and he went to a a bookshelf and we're very fortunate to grow up in a a house where literally every room, including the bathroom, floor-to-ceiling shelves with books. And he plucked a heavy tome and he showed me an image of uh, the raft of the Medusa, which is quite a, a gory Jericho's painting. You know. it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant. No, it's people gasping on a raft, about to die. Correct. It, it's very dramatic, very That's dramatic right. Waving romantic Waving a painting. flag. You yes. Know, and, and what did he want you to do with that? Oh, not me. This was it. He was going to originally assist. Next thing I know, he's brought home some bags of plaster of Paris and he's converted the dining table into an art table and he's packing plaster and um, he's creating and sculpting waves and figurines. And there the entire family sees over a period of almost two weeks a 3D extraordinary model of the um, the naufragé come to life. So he's taken over your school project I, I, at this point? I would point. say so, yeah. and, and he's reproducing Jericho's The Raft of the Medusa the Raft of the in Medusa. 3D for your school project. And how old were you at the time? I would have been seven. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, at least I'd like to, you know, could, could, I, could I contribute in some small minor way? And, and, but at the same time, absolutely awestruck and impressed by watching my father work the clay in the plaster of Paris and the perfectionism with even when it came to the painting of the tips of the waves. And then, of course, the day arrived where I had to transport it in the back of the Volkswagen and present alongside the other children with their wonderful paddle pop sticks and cotton wool creations. And what did the nuns say when they saw this masterpiece, this extraordinary reproduction? Well, the nun in question, we used to joke, our nickname was um, Holy Moly because, like myself, she had a few booty spots. Um, (laughs) um, Holy Moly was, I could see by her expression... I don't know if she was horrified by the work in itself, that it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a confronting work or the fact that I think it was clear that I had not constructed this. It was straight out, you did not make this. And a note was sent home and my father said, don't worry about it. He said, it's not, you know, your fault if she can't appreciate art. <laughs> and The Philistine. Yeah. This, this is it. It was right. more the, 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 and I don't think he quite understood it, but this was, this was our father. It was, it was wonderful to watch him at work when he, when he drew because not many people realised that he liked to caricature and paint and 
had he not been a Sinologist, you know, his aspiration as a teenager was to work as a, as, as a cartoonist. And he had cartoons published at the age of 14 in the Belgian press and studied with a caricaturist who had worked along, alongside Hergé. The Tintin creator. What was your dad's early life like growing up in Belgium? I think he was very fortunate to have a privileged life. It was a quiet life. It was very much family. He always spoke about the kindness at home. Was he old enough to have experienced the Nazi occupation of Belgium? Well, what he recalls, these grand houses, um, neighbouring houses, suddenly empty. And also my grandfather hid a family for, for a short spell. So it was always, this is how it was. There was no question that you did not do the right thing. This was really the values that were instilled in them as children. How did he first become interested in China? Well, my father, when he wasn't able to be a full-time cartoonist, he thought he would run away to sea. And already as a teenager and as a young adult, he would um, escape on fishing trawlers and travel on cargo ships. And he loved that life. He was studying fine art, philosophy and law, and developed an interest in, in Chinese art. And he was one of two Belgians at that time to join a student delegation when China was opening to the West. And so he made a trip at 19, so 1955, to China. And that trip changed him forever, marked him to want to return and to study the language. Now, it was recorded that on that trip... He met Zhao Enlai, like the number two man in the newly installed communist regime there. Did he ever talk to you about this stuff? Like, he, like Zhao Enlai is a guy that both Richard Nixon and Gough Whitlam said was the most impressive man they ever met. Did he ever talk about this stuff? No, but this is, this is um, it's always interesting with, with one's own parents, and I see that with my own, my own daughter who is now 15. They have absolutely no interest <laughs> whatsoever in what you do. Parents are really just there to provide shelter and finances. And my parents always spoke um, Mandarin together. And we knew our father was a sinologist. And if when one would say it's, you know, at school, what does your father do? And say, sinologist. And the nuns would say, oh, a nose doctor. <laughs> no, a China expert. Well, what's that? What does a China expert do? And I thought, what does What does do? a China expert do? <laughs> what does a China expert do? So after your dad visited China on that visit, he was called up for military service in Belgium, but it's recorded that he was a conscientious objector. What did that mean for him in practical terms there? I think it you know, provided a wonderful alternative. He was very um, anti-uniform. So it meant that he could teach French in a third world country and he was, he was very keen to return to China. And so he went to Taiwan, he went to Hong Kong. He then went back to Taiwan because he'd caught the eye of a, a very um, alluring, bright young woman, my mother, who was a student at the time studying journalism. For my father, he says it was love at first sight. For my mother, she said, mm, not so much. She recalled a very emaciated, bedraggled <laughs> Belgian white fellow, but was speaking already beautiful Mandarin. And when he would visit her home to meet with her father... He was also subjected to the Chinese violin. And that was a test from my, my, my grandfather. And my father loved it. And then they wed with only two, two witnesses. So then you and your brothers came along. And when you were only three, the family decided to move to Australia from Hong Kong for your dad to take up an academic post at the Australian National University. Now, Jeanne, what did your parents know about the strange and wondrous metropolis that is Canberra? in the Australian Capital Territory, in the heartland of the enchanted land of Australia back then? I, I think they were, they were a little bit shell-shocked. They, consult, they told me that they consulted the, the I Ching, or some say the, the really? I Ching. Right. You know, do, do we go or do we not go? And they consulted. You have to ask questions, as you know, you don't get a direct answer. But four children under the age of four and the opportunity to have space um, to leave Hong Kong, but more importantly for my father to be able to write in peace... Are there any two places on earth that are more different than Hong Kong and Canberra? You think? Multicultural Canberra in 1970. Well, I guess the first introduction to Canberra was my father, who had learned Tai Chi and with a Tai Chi master, was practising out on the nature strip. That was his form of exercise and meditation. And a paddy wagon drives slowly by. 
and the cops are looking at this thin bloke. And remember, this is also the time of Vietnam and there used to be an asylum in the vicinity. <laughs> Their first thought is there's someone is an escapee. He's doing slow um, kung fu. Um, so it's a madman. So they, they got out and they arrested him and they put him in the back of the paddy wagon. And so for Professor Liu, the, the head of the um, Asian Studies, had to vouch that, no, in fact, he was an eminent young sinologist. He had not escaped from the asylum. What kind of an environment did your parents create in the family home? An absolutely wonderful environment. It really was an idyllic childhood of being able to roam, surrounded by books and music. Um, which we just took as a given. Nothing was ever pressed on us. It was just storytelling and art and we were introduced to so many wonderful things as children. And do you associate uh, that with comfort and security now, being in a calm place with books and music? Yes, absolutely. What kind of values did your father give you growing up? Trust and honesty, truth. It sounds sort of awfully sort of virtuous, but it wasn't. It, it was just... Um, basic decency and kindness and, and humour. My father was extremely funny and ability to laugh at oneself, above all. How so, about your mum? What kind of standards did your mum want to uphold with you? Oh, she used to have what was called the hot rod. Is that orange flexible? She, she was... Are you saying she used to whack you with a Hot Wheels track? Yes, the Hot Wheels track, exactly. Remember it was orange? Yeah, you I had matchbox them. matchbox cars. Yeah. They're quite flexy. Yeah, you could so, form them into a loop-de-loop. Exactly yeah. right, exactly. So she'd chase us with that. She was a disciplinarian. Was she harder on you being the only daughter? I'd say yes. She would probably dispute no, but um, yes, I'd say she was. She was one of 11. She used to say how fortunate to have one daughter. She just really wanted just one daughter because she had sisters. Your dad once referred to your mum as his compass. How did you see their relationship? It, It was a remarkable love story. It was... A wonderful thing to observe. We thought that's how every married couple or couples behaved. They enjoyed each other's company. I never recalled a harsh word. There was just such a strong bond and and such a deep friendship and respect. Never a harsh word between them, but you got the odd Hot Wheels track. I got the Hot Wheels. This is it. (laughs) I think my father would just (laughs) disappear. Um, But just a beautiful love story. Your father, after his first trip in the mid-50s to China, fell in love with China and that led to him declaring his support for the new regime that took over after the communist revolution in 1949. What did he tell you was the incident that shifted his perception of the Maoist regime in China? He witnessed an assassination on his doorstep, a car that had been firebombed. Where was Um, this? This was in Hong Kong, and this was in August of 67. And who was the victim of this attack? A variety artist, Lin Pin and his cousin, who had a successful program mocking the Maoists. So he was was... targeted by the regime? Yes. And the car was blown up? Yes, and it was just outside where my parents were living in Waterloo Hill in Hong Kong. So this then caused him to re-examine what was really happening. And, And this, of course, was just a year before... May 68. So the French intellectuals and the French intellectual elite, rather, were outraged when my father's book was published, The Chairman's New Clothes, because it was impossible for them to believe what was really happening. Elements of the French left were very pro-Mao in those days. So he was pilloried then for his criticism of the Maoist regime. Yes. I mean, even when he took the chair when he was um, asked, invited to take the chair at Sydney University. You know, Gough Whitlam opposed and, and tried to block his appointment, having never read my father. But, you know, my father was a troublemaker, so he was known, this is it. I mean, if you, if you do put your head above the parapet, of course you risk it, having it being shot off. You mentioned the book he wrote, which was The Chairman's New Clothes, where he identified what was going on during the Cultural Revolution as essentially a power struggle between Mao and the rest of the party. We now know... That that's exactly what was happening. It was Mao reasserting control over the party. Did anyone ever sort of acknowledge that? Well, I think it's always been wise in hindsight. I mean, yeah. it wasn't until Tiananmen Square that he felt. But there's no, you know, vindication. I mean, he, he wrote a beautiful piece for the New York Review of Books called The Curse of the Man Who Could See the Little Fish at the Bottom of the Ocean because suddenly everybody wanted, how did you know? How did you see this? How did you predict this? But 
it was probably one of the saddest pieces. It, it's, I think, still a remarkable piece of writing because there is no sense of, I told you so, I got it right. It's not about, it's not a question of being right. It was just the solitude of speaking out was incredibly difficult. It would feel very, very bittersweet. You know, as we always remember that image of the lone student in front of the tank. Now there were cameras and the whole world could see what was going on. Your dad was very highly regarded in places, deeply controversial in others. He was an international figure in these matters in a great many ways. When did you realise your daggy dad was something of an international celebrity in this world? Well, having grown up being raised, because of the formative years in Canberra, we went briefly to Hong Kong and then Taiwan. It was the first time I met my maternal grandmother. So um, we arrived at the airport and suddenly they were looking agitated and, um, and it was, we need you when those doors open, we need you to run. Just run behind us, but just run. So when the doors to the main concourse open, you've got your bag, yeah. run. We just need you to run. And we thought it was some kind of a game. And, you know, as children do, you say, why, 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 10,000, stop asking why, just do it. <laughs> and so the doors opened and suddenly there were these flashing lights and it's crowded as well. So we started running and my brother and I are looking around and my brother says to me, there's someone famous here. And we're thinking, well, who's famous? And we're looking madly around. We think, why are they running after us? And we keep looking. And it wasn't until there these cars arrived out the front and we were pushed, you know, physically sort of, I think I was half picked up and just thrown in with the suitcase. And um, not understanding what was going on. And then <laughs> arriving at um, my grandmother's home and being told that somebody had tipped off the press. They had heard that my father had just arrived in Taipei. So there were dozens of journalists there. And camera crews. I think we'll be a bit disappointed, to be honest. What? what? Not just Dad? I thought it might have been, I don't know, one of the monkeys. or Right. Jackie Chan or something. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just Dad. It's just Dad. And what has he done that makes him, is he kind of a fugitive? (laughs) And that's why we first realised that my father had had an impact. So, Jeanne, you were going to school at that period at St Clair's Catholic School and I think I was living in Canberra at the same time as you then and I remember, like, far from Canberra's reputation, Canberra being a really lively place at that time. There was a lot going on, but it was all underneath the surface. Do you remember Canberra being like that? Well, as I did say to you once upon a time, Canberra back then was really an inland puberty blues and glamour for me was they were Ugg boots, much to my mother's absolute um, chagrin and horror, the, the old Bond sweatshirts. just want to fit in. And the family were, were shocked when I, uh, I, I saved up to have a po- one of those poodle perms. I thought I'd look fantastic. Instead, you know, <laughs> this is well before K-pop and the mortification. And I think for about three months at the dinner table, no one could look at me because they'd all start laughing. And there's an example of my father's kindness where he'd say, stop to everybody else. And then if he looked at me, he'd have to put his head down because I clearly looked. I have one photograph that survives. Of the poodle perm. Yeah, everyone's had a bad haircut, but that was really trying to fit in. Have you ever seen, you know, a Eurasian with, with and I'm, because of course I have such straight hair, it fell out. And so they, the hairdresser put in, whatever it is, double strength chemicals. So I walked out with ringlets. <laughs> So then you gave Canberra away and in your late teens, Jane, you went to Paris to study at the Sorbonne. Oh, was it all, you know, smoking galoises, drinking perno, discussing arcane bits of literature? Was the Sorbonne as glam as it looks? Alas, no. I mean, the French do this very well. I mean, it's a beautiful building, but, but it was the structure of it. It was so rigid. And then I was fortunate enough that there was a small English language bookstore called Attica. And I just walked in one day, just to browse, and I asked, could I get a part-time job? So I got a job working in the the bookshop. And I think my literary education really began in that bookshop because of the two eccentric managers who insisted that I read pretty much everything in in, in the shop. And this particular store, the sister store, was City Lights in San Francisco. Why are you here? Why are you not still selling 
books in this fabulous bookshop on the Rue des Écoles in Paris, go, slowly going through every single book that's ever written. That sounds beautiful. I lost my residency. We were permanent residents. When, when we arrived in Australia, we were granted permanent residency. Now, Belgium didn't recognise dual citizenship until 2008. So you were officially Belgian at officially this point? Officially Belgian. Even and though you'd never lived there. You'd lived in Hong Kong, Australia, and you were still officially Belgian. So did you need to come back to Australia in order to be Australian? So, yes. So in 89, um, the law changed, whereby if you left the country for more than three years, you would automatically lose your residency. So I had to actually emigrate back under the family reunion scheme and sit an English test and, and, and a health test, um, a tuberculosis examination. But I felt profoundly Australian because my formative years was were spent here. And drinking passiona, eating uh, paddle pops. That's right, Sunny Boys. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chico Rolls. And I would not have left Paris otherwise because in my I was now in my mid twenties and working for a French network on a live arts program, which was a talk show, which is absolutely gave access to everything. Um, were you nonetheless relieved to come back to Australia? Well, I didn't realise things that I'd taken for granted, just basic things, the southern skies. Yeah, the big sky. I mean, I mean, and this was also at a time where France was quite, it was economically depressed. It wasn't the most joyous place to be. It was the rise of Le Pen right wing. It was extremism. Um, and suddenly coming home, that literal blinding light, space, but it was straight to Sydney as opposed to back to Canberra. So you worked for some years as a magazine journalist and at SBS as a TV presenter for a while. And fast forward now to 2013 and your dad was diagnosed with cancer and he became very ill. How did your relationship with him change once he became very ill? Well, the diagnosis shocked us all. It was prostate cancer and he had a morbid fear of doctors. And, of course, if it had been picked up sooner had he been checked... He wouldn't have passed away. It was too late. By the time he was diagnosed, it had metastasized. So we never really wanted to quite believe it was happening and it was our first experience of, of dying. My father had to take allegedly a bone-strengthening drug. I mean, he was dying. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. We should have just sit here, drink the best champagne, mm. eat the cheese, but you somehow trying to prolong it. And the patient agrees to it to make you happy. Exactly sometimes. right. And much later, even sort of the, you know, that obsessive washing of hands, trying to keep the place perfectly clean, hygienic, because we didn't want him to get sick. But he was, he was dying. So we brought him home to die. Um, he wanted to come home. And so that at least was something. And it's a privilege in an, uh, to, to be able to die at home as well. After his death, you wrote a piece about him where you quoted the daughter of the great Italian novelist, Italo Calvino, who said, some fathers never die. It is the case with mine. His sudden death left me awkwardly straddling two realities, one from which he was irreversibly gone and another where he is forever present. Is that how it is for you and Pierre, your father? Yes, yes, absolutely. And when they loom large in your life, but then I feel so grateful to be able to hear him radio interviews that were recorded, and to read him. How often do you think of him? Almost daily. And it's a natural. I think, oh, he'd enjoy that. And I remember it was actually Stuart Littlemore QC who said to me, there is a missing, but you will always have those conversations. They continue. You have them in your head. And the missing is more that he doesn't see his two grandchildren. And particularly for my mother... I mean, she's unbelievably stoic, but because they did everything together and she she edited his books, everything was shared, it's half of her is, is, is gone. And how does she keep him present in her life? My father was a prolific diary keeper. He noted down uh, everything, quotations that something that he read that he enjoyed, um, but he kept, he kept diaries, so she reads his diaries. She keeps that alive for her through his books and through his, his artworks as well. It gives her comfort. So moving on a few years now, after you joined the publishing world, you got married, you had a daughter, the marriage broke up, and this leads to a phase in your life that you've addressed in your recent book, Trust. 
you entered into a relationship with a man, a man you call the Irish academic in your book. How did you first meet this man? In a hotel lobby in Sydney, and he told me that my father had been a question on his final year, East Asian Studies, Pulsi exam. He told me he was a professor of law at an Australian university where I knew two professors, and when I named them, he immediately acknowledged that, oh, yes, um, good friends of mine. So there was an easy facility. He was very charming. And he told me that he specialised in ethics, particularly in trust. He talks often about broken trust. How does one restore trust in distrusting times? Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Please be advised that this part of the conversation includes a discussion of coercive control and an incident of physical violence. Jean, this man you're calling the Irish academic, what was he working on at the start of your story together? He was proposing a Centre for Trust at um, an Australian university business school and everybody was jumping on that bandwagon. So he'd really found, you know, that sort of sweet spot, particularly in academia, because they trusted him. And how was he with you? Originally very charming. When I first met him, he was carrying a book of a recent prize winner and he struck up easy conversation about the book. He had a facility to be able to identify, to make that connection. And that, of course, is a way to gain, to gain trust. And, yeah, know, a fellow he, who likes a good book can't, can't, can't be all bad, can't can be he? all bad. Yeah. And, and he talked about the importance of values and, and, and why he had decided, you know, why he was specialising in trust and... He talked about his his background of growing up in Northern Ireland, of a civil war that was um, raging outside the front door as a civil war raged domestically inside the house. Parents who had such contempt for each other. And he talked about his work. I mean, he sounded like a great adventurer and somebody who had very strong principles and ethics. And I guess by virtue of what he did for a living made me think this is a good person and a trustworthy person at that. As you got closer to him, did you check him out? Did you Google his name? Absolutely, like every good um, female detective. And I saw that. I mean, he, he checked out. He had taught at these universities. I mean, I remember watching um, lecture that he'd given that had been um, posted on YouTube by the university. I'd seen that he had written the books, a biography of a, of a Harvard professor who had fallen into disgrace for not paying his taxes. Like, you know, one misdeed, everything changes. And um, so, yes, he, he checked out. So I assumed everything he was telling me was truthful. What kind of context, high-powered high context, did he claim to have? Well, that should have been a red flag. Uh, was it, Cardinal Pell was an odd one. He said he knew Cardinal Pell. He said he knew Cardinal Pell. was a friend? Through another colleague because he was rather insistent, because I was uh, separated um, from my husband, amicably so. And so the Irish professor was somewhat displeased. Well, if you're separated legally, why would you not divorce? And I know Cardinal Pell. And he offered to annul the marriage. Now, that should have been... What? Really? It's funny, in hindsight, one now thinks, well... He he said he was going to... He said, I'll ask the good cardinal to... um, To annul your marriage. annulling the marriage. And um, I I, I thanked him politely but said, no, thank you. But the stories started to become more outlandish. But there was something also, I think, poetic about his stories of this sort of magical, mystical, faraway island off the far west coast of Ireland called Inishboffin. So if you've seen the Banshees of Inishrin... And what what was that island to him? This represented a a kind of a refuge, sort of a Shangri-La, that he claimed to have visited first as as a small boy and it was the only place he recalled where he was truly happy. And then, of course, he extended me the invitation 
come away with me to this island. I've never taken another woman there. And did you go? Yes. <laughs> so I, I first flew to the United Arab Emirates where he was teaching at a university. What I didn't realise at the time was that he was in the process of negotiating his departure from that university. And we then flew to Ireland, hired a car and spent about five days. It was like a, almost like a film set, flocks of little white um, woolly sheep with little black eyes like little Shaun the Sheep bouncing along. It's a treeless island, beautiful topography. Did he ever ask to borrow money from you? Yes. He asked to borrow money claiming that he'd left his wallet behind on a sideboard after he'd flown 14 hours to Australia from the UAE. Now, I did think it unusual how does somebody forget their wallet. He was very convincing and he paid me back three weeks later. He paid you back? He did pay me back, but the hotel where he was staying, he needed a credit card. Even though the room had been prepaid by the university, he told me the hotel required credit cards for incidentals. I mean, he asked that also that he borrow $2,000. But when he checked out of the hotel, that little niggling voice, six cents, kicked in and I asked the hotel to send me the, the final bill because they would have sent it to his university email address. And when I saw it, I was just, I was shocked at, at the amount that had been put onto my credit card. Are we talking about more than $1,000 here? More than $1,000, but also he'd been fined because he had been caught smoking in the room. So I called him to query the bill and he first denied having smoked in the room and I explained he had been seen by somebody in housekeeping and then he just played it down. He said, don't worry, well, how much is it? I'll pay you back with the cash, with the loan. But when he paid me back, he did say, see, you are a kind person. Thank you for the loan. Um, oh, he, he rewarded for it. He rewarded your trust. Didn't he? he rewarded the trust, which then made me feel guilty for having suspected that perhaps something was untoward. Something untoward, exactly. When you met your brother, he told your brother that he assured your brother that he would never lie to you. How did that read with you? I overheard him saying it at a party, and I remember thinking, "What an unusual thing to say." Why did you think it was unusual? Because I think it goes without saying you're not going to lie. I mean, one doesn't say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just make a point of, um, um, you know, I shall never lie. Yeah. It goes without saying. Either. Like for her, yeah. and I'll I, never lie. That should have been, an in, again, an indication. But you can have all these little signposts. But I didn't pay heed at the time because I just felt, I think, a bit guilty. So then he got a job in Melbourne to set up a centre of trust at a business school in Melbourne. Uh, you're in Sydney and he was flying into Melbourne. What happened when he arrived at Melbourne Airport? Well, I knew already for a period of five, six weeks that his flight was arriving on a Sunday night and I'd explained that I could not be there to greet him because of family obligations. But when he did arrive, suddenly the text messages changed from the excitement of being back in Australia and the joy of starting a new life for him and working to make the centre a success. And, and it just sort of within five text messages suddenly turned into a heap of uh, rage of why are you not here? Why could you not be bothered to take a, a short flight to greet me? He was angry because you hadn't flown from Sydney to Melbourne to it, greet him at the airport. And it went from joyful to rage in the space of fewer than five text messages. And when I tried to call, he then switched off his telephone. But the messages were quite disturbing and alarming in his vehemence and, and rage. And I became immediately uneasy. I, I couldn't understand how someone could switch so quickly and why I was being punished for not being in, in the terminal with welcome balloons. So did you write it off as a bit of a dead loss after that? Really, or were you guilty? Were you actually guilty? I felt really uneasy. It was just unnecessarily nasty. It just felt mean. And then the next day, messages with no mention of what had transpired... And when I raised it, um, sort of glossed over it with a, a semi-apology. But much later I realised that it, it was like almost a, he had to rehearse the word. It wasn't something that came naturally. He just would kind of go blank, couldn't understand why something was upsetting. And so this started. So it was kind of a slow chipping away 
So what I didn't know but I do now was I was experiencing coercive control where you never have to lay a hand on somebody or strike them or it's physically abusive. It's with words, it's with language, it's with those behaviours. I guess what they call gaslightings of the 101 is making you feel responsible that you have done something. So I felt that I had done something wrong. Right, you were creating the emotional weather, not him. Exactly, that, I'm, that I must have been unthinking or, or selfish, that I didn't make the effort, that he'd made this effort, even though he was insistent that he was not moving countries because of me, it was because of setting up this Centre for Trust. So after he'd set up this Centre for Trust at this Melbourne institution, this Centre for Excellence, he was later investigated with allegations of deception and fraud, and so he left the university. Was that when you decided to distance yourself a bit from him too at that point? Absolutely, because I discovered it when I was shown the letter of investigation from that particular university, and I was shocked, and uh, and I put to him, how did this actually happen? And it, but it all started to sort of make sense, the erratic behaviour, the spending, the travelling... The quest to get Australia Research Council grants. Were your friends taking you aside at this point? I think I was already Sneaking. sort of becoming more and more isolated and I felt I couldn't really explain because I couldn't explain it to myself. So I really didn't understand what was going on because the behaviour was erratic and because he lived in a different city because I wasn't exposed to it. I think it, the game would have been up a lot sooner in terms of what was happening within the university. But what I later discovered was that, in effect, you can move from university to university when something untoward has been discovered um, and usually to write a letter of recommendation. It's, it's quite extraordinary. And again, my father had, of course, spoken up about universities in a boy lecture. My father had a very strong view on what was happening with, with Australian universities becoming corporations. And business schools are very much a part of... um, That influence. Mm. Yes. Then in 2018, he suddenly appeared on your doorstep in Sydney. What did he want? He wanted temporary shelter. He was um, profoundly apologetic and he was completely skint. And he said if I didn't give him a temporary accommodation, then he would drive his novated, leased Golf GTI straight to the gap and go over the edge. And um, so, again, I didn't realise that's just a a classic ruse to guilt you into assisting him. How long did he end up staying with you for? Gosh, for another 14 months. And that's where I learned to tiptoe. How did he behave while he was under your roof? It started out, um, it was like a flatmate situation. And he would make himself sort of scarce during the day, but I was at work. He then shifted his focus on trying to get the trust project up with this exhibition with Magnum. The photography agency. The photography agency. And what was his plan? And his was, um, it was called the trust project. So he took it out of the universities and the trust project would now encompass not just the professional but the personal. And he would mount this um, landmark exhibition using Magnum photos, a bit like the World Press exhibition, and it would travel around Australia and then would travel overseas. And it would be this inspiring exhibition? It would be an inspiring exhibition, so through Magnum photographers, through photographs that would illustrate the notion of trust. And did he succeed in getting Magnum on board for this? He, He flew to London and Magnum came on board. He was so gifted with the gab and with the whole idea of trust that he would, on the one hand, say Deloitte we're going to guarantee 1.2 million. And then he would go to Thomson Reuters and say, now I've got 1.2 commitment from Deloitte. How much would you like to kick in? And including Fairfax. In a sense, what this was was an, was an academic Ponzi scheme. But in the end, nobody, mercifully, nobody put any money in, but it got close. How was he living on a day-to-day basis? Did he ask you for money? Unemployment benefits. And then he decided that the best way to get money would be to apply for a paid PhD for a Commonwealth-funded scholarship. And did he get respectable people to support this? He just made the application. And so when he was interviewed, um, he came back very pleased with himself, saying that his proposed supervisor, he said, was um, charmed. And she'd asked him, why would a professor who already has a PhD 
wished to do another. And he said, well, um, I'm Irish. It's, it's, it's the eternal thirst for knowledge. And she thought that was wonderful. And not a single person checked the CV, not a single person asked questions. So that, that was 30000 tax-free per annum for three years. There's this wonderful picture of you, a sketch drawn of you by an old ex of yours that was in your bedroom. What did he make of that sketch of you? Yeah, that was a, a sketch by Bill Leake, immediate aversion. He thought it was somehow betrayal. So you can see trust loom so large. And so he would remove it and he would cover it in, in post-it notes because Bill had, Bill had died and he'd put post-it notes with sleep with your ghosts. He wrote sleep with your ghosts. Sleep with your ghosts. And so there are all these little tactics to really unsettle our nerve and, and say, yes, you certainly learn how to walk on eggshells. But and, and again, I did not know how to or where to get the help, how to talk about it, because I didn't know it was actually a, a thing. And it's also, it's, it's a sense of shame. You just feel terribly ashamed. You don't actually understand that this, the shame is not yours to own, but but you just feel foolish and you often hear People say, how could a woman such as yourself, how does an intelligent person get caught up? How, you know, how could you be so dumb? How could that person be so stupid? It's so far from the reality. It, it, it's why did they do it? It's what Jess Hill wrote about in her remarkable Stella Prize winning book. Yeah, it puts the question to the wrong person. Yes, exactly. So then I would start to question effectively, maybe that is offensive having a sketch of myself on the wall, this could be perceived as um, hurtful to another party rather than sort of the lucid, again, um, not heeding that, that, that voice of sanity and safety. What was the incident that constituted the, the final break between the two of you? What I know now is that an act of violence almost always occurs when that control is broken, almost like a spell, if you end it. So I had said to him in December, early December of 2019, I, I travelled to Bhutan and I just want to get as far away as possible where I could just be completely where I could think clearly with no distractions, where I could just walk and think and think. And I returned to Sydney and I said it was supposed to be a period of two weeks which is stretched well beyond, um, you have to leave, you have to go. And what did he do when you said that? He would usually accept and then he would throw a terrible tantrum. That, they were becoming quite frightening whereas I was really questioning my safety. So at first it was accepting, then there was a massive tantrum, then it was, right, I have bought a ticket, a one-way ticket, I'm returning to Ireland. And he was due to fly out on the afternoon of the 29th and he'd packed bags and he'd left the two suitcases in the entranceway and he showed me a reservation at uh, the airport hotel and he disappeared for the day. And then it was late when he came back, we had gone for a brief meal and I left midway when he went off to have a cigarette because I thought, I don't have to do this anymore. Why am I sitting here? And he'd become verbally abusive. And so I just, I left. And so I walked slowly home and I went through the back, through the back garage and as I came into the lounge, all the lights were off, it was dark. I could hear this awful smashing sound on the front door. And... To this day, I think, God, the things that go through one's mind, my first thought was, what will the neighbours think? Rather than, don't open the door. And it's really like, you know, when you watch a horror movie and you say, don't go, what are you, you're watching the potential victim, you're screaming at the screen. But I went to the door and I opened the door to stop the noise. It was just screaming and shouting, and um, I hadn't realised that I had a garden pot that used to be by the front door, and he'd taken out this ficus plant and he'd been using that to try and smash against the door and against the window. And he pushed past, and I just remember this kind of rush of air and the suitcases and this screaming, and then he he took off. And I closed the door with the, with the, with the palm of my hand, but I didn't lock it but I didn't expect anybody was going to come back. And then I just remember standing there just with my heart pounding and thinking that was so close. And then suddenly the door opened. I didn't see it, but the, the hearing a whooshing 
sound, him screaming obscenities and then he was gone and then just standing in the dark. Sort of what happened? Not un- quite understanding. And, and then I just felt something warm and I thought, hold on, and I took a step back and something crunched underfoot. So I went to turn on the light and there was smashed ceramic all over the floor and I still couldn't quite understand what had happened. And then um, I looked down and there were just splot, splot, and I thought, I'm bleeding somewhere and I'm touching my head thinking, where have I been hit? I couldn't work out where I'd been hit. And then going into the bathroom and and then seeing that a piece of ceramic had actually bounced off the floor and lodged itself and that he'd thrown a pot somewhere at me. Where had the pot hit you? I later discovered actually it struck my left shoulder and it actually torn a few millimetres in my left shoulder. So I was very lucky. I, I mean, I, I, I had a superficial but somewhat small slice on, on the top lip, which was skin glued at hospital. But then you went to a system and a whole world and a system I just never thought, again, these things don't happen to people like us. Were police brought to you? The hospital insisted that, well, they're mandated. They have to call the police if an injury has been sustained. And did they want to lay charges? They took what's called a DVEC, so they um, they take a written statement, a video... Of you in that that state? Yes, and the whole idea of this DVEC was introduced um, some years ago to try and capture a moment after a a criminal assault has taken place because they can then see as opposed to a cop just noting it um, because you can introduce errors. After they made their report, also they're mandated because an injury has been sustained that an ADVO uh, or an apprehended violence order is automatically taken out to protect you. So they went to arrest him, but as I later discovered, they just left a message on his mobile phone. So he had to present to a police station, Waverley Police Station, the next day at noon. And I understand they took a statement. They arrested him at the counter. So was he brought before the court? Yes. He faced court three times. The first time was for the mention of the ADVO, which was finalised by the court, uncontested. Then it was for the mention for criminal assault, and then it was sentencing, and he applied via his lawyer for what's known as a Section 32. And a 32 means that you are referred, it means that you are not absolved of the crime committed, you are referred or the court directs you to the mental health service. So he claimed mental health problems to avoid criminal conviction. So it also means you avoid entering a plea. Have you seen him since? In between the second mention of the criminal assault and the actual sentencing, he used to roam outside my home and he used to roam in the street and it was just as as the pandemic hit. And he was living at the... The university gave him subsidised housing and even though we notified the university and said, we have a serious concern, they were totally dismissive. And I think often the problem is that it's the D, if it's an AVO apprehended violence order, you put a D in there and you say it's domestic, people become immediately uncomfortable and awkward because if he had thrown that pot at a, at a colleague, at a male colleague, that's, that's criminal assault. I mean, it is a criminal assault. It's listed as a criminal assault. But I think, yeah, the addition of the word domestic makes people feel automatically very awkward. Have you fully recovered from that injury? Yes. I mean, it took a, the shoulder only manifested about four weeks later, but tore sort of three millimetres in the left. And so I had to go, it was either to have surgery or go through intense physiotherapy for the best part of six months. And thanks to a brilliant physio. And then it's just the, the, the repair, the learning that, that one hasn't done anything wrong. You sort of have to re-educate yourself. You become hypervigilant. You know, it, it took some time just to be able to not swivel if I saw someone walking past in a white shirt. If I heard the front gate squeak, I'd think, put a, a golf club by the, by the door. It takes time. So this man is now out of the country? Yes. After the sentencing, he, he, he actually went to, um, to the hinterland of Byron Bay and reinvented himself as a um, global music DJ. Good God. Yes. But he's no longer in Australia. No, he's, he's left Australia. Your book is called Trust, A Fractured Fable. You have a trusting nature, as you said, and I think most of us, most of us do, really. I know you thought a lot about this in your book, 
made me think a lot about it, about the danger of extending your trust to people you don't really know, but then it's impossible to live without trust. What do you think, John, about all that? I think we're all hardwired from birth to trust. Instinctively, we want to trust. And what I tried to do with the book was to examine trust, both professional and personal, what happens when trust is broken and how one recovers. You know, but as Hemingway says, to be trustworthy, you have to be able to trust. And I would hate to think that, you know, one loses that um, ability because I, I think it is, yes, we're hardwired. It's a bit of a miserable life if you don't trust. Very much so. You can't have love. That's right. So this is the risk we all have to take, I suppose, in living. That's right. Friendships, all of it. But again, that that voice that keeps us safe. See, I think often we don't heed, particularly for women, for some reason, we don't always heed when something doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, all those thoughts you said you had, like, what will the neighbours think and what will my friends think? But also, look, I I tried to make the book blackly funny because it was darkly funny because there is so much that is preposterous. I don't want you know to think this is all really heavy doom and gloom. You say it's a fractured it's, fable. What's what's fractured here? It's not you. You're you're all right, really, aren't you? Or, or are you not? Should? I think originally, the fractured part. I remember when I when I stood there in Credges looking at pieces of broken ceramic as they were being swept up, and being thrown into the bin. I thought, well, that's me. I felt that the twenty two months had fractured me, that everything was confusing and I felt, how am I going to somehow put myself back together again? Everything is broken and there's all these shards. How would I piece this together? Did I let this happen? How did I let this happen? What is my responsibility in all of this? The the fable part was, of course I'd been flattered. The idea of come away with me to this magical island I, I will still listen to um, Van Morrison. Somebody did ask me the other day, <laughs> could you ever listen to Van Morrison? Because he only ever listened, hummed, played Van Morrison and it was always the healing has begun. Now, therein lies the irony because I had to do the healing. And he recited Yeats. It was all part of the charm and the act. So what's fractured here then? Is it just the story? The fractured is the story, the idea that I had in my mind, an idea of him, an idea of how the world should be as well. Sean, thank you very much for sharing your story. Thanks so much, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 